the glorious truth is, friends, that we are immune from eternal wrath because we've been justified. And this means that God doesn't have any basis to condemn us. And why? Because our sins have been paid for in full. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. It's such a privilege to be able uh, to bring God's word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5. Uh, and this is just a preference of mine, but I would encourage you uh, to be bringing physical Bibles to church with you, um, not just rely on your phones. Um, phones are uh, the technology that is there. It is great. It's, it's great to be able to be you know, anywhere that we are and be able to pull up God's word. Um, but a phone also comes with lots of other distractions, doesn't it? Um, and so I wouldn't recommend it as a study tool necessarily, a main study tool. We need to have the pages in our hands that we can flip, that we can turn, that we can write notes, that we can underline. Uh, and our phones, you know, we're reading God's word and all of a sudden there's an Instagram notification and we're like, oh, what's that about, right? Uh, and so it's really easy to be distracted, even though I am thankful for uh, just having God's word at our fingertips um, all the time. That's, that's a blessing. But I encourage you to be bringing your physical Bibles to church on Sundays. Uh, well, we're in Romans chapter 5, and we are five verses in into an amazing, an amazing passage that really beautifully describes the intricacy of the gospel. And I've been so looking forward to and excited to study these verses with you. Uh, verse 8, of course, you know well. Verse 8 is such a clear picture of the gospel. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we're going to look at that in these other verses this morning. Um, but before we read our passage, let's just be reminded, um, as we were talking about, that this is the very word of God that we hold in our hands. Uh, the Lord created us, and he created this universe, and as creator, he has authority to mold his creation for his purposes. And we are very grateful that he has not stayed silent that he has communicated with us. He's given us his word, and his word has authority. It has authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And we know that his word is sufficient, meaning that we have everything we need for life and godliness or in these pages. We know that God's word is inerrant and infallible. That means that it's absolutely true and totally trustworthy. And we know that the word of God is active for today. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's nourishing, it's sanctifying, and it's cleansing. So may he direct our lives this morning as we see how God's love is displayed in this text. So we're going to read our text. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. Uh, we looked at verses 1 through 5 two weeks ago, but we'll read those again just to see our context in this chapter, and then we'll read through to verse 11. But we'll be spending our time in verses 6 through 11 this morning. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together one last time. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask as we look through these verses and study them that you would protect us from error this morning, Lord. And that, Holy Spirit, you would be working to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to hear this truth, to understand it, and to let it direct our lives this morning. And Jesus, the, the name above all names, the one who is worthy of all praise, we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, the second verse of one of our favorite songs here that we sing at church goes like this. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. And those words beautifully describe parts in our text this morning. And our task as we look at these verses is to behold the love of God, to behold the love of God. And I've titled the sermon, God's Love Displayed. In our, in our text, we're going to answer three questions. So if you're taking notes, if you would like to, you can. You can jot these three questions down. Uh, the first question is, who are the beneficiaries of this love? And we're going to see that in verses 6 through 8. Who are the beneficiaries of this love? Number two, we're going to see what are we saved from? What are we saved from? Verses 9 and 10. And then number three, we're going to see what does this love produce in us? What does this love produce in us? So question number one, who are the beneficiaries? Or you could say the recipients of this love. Well, we're going to see in these verses three descriptors. Three descriptors. God's love has been shown to the weak, to the ungodly, and the sinner. The weak, the ungodly, and the sinner. Verse 6, it starts with this conjunction word, for. It's connecting verse 5, obviously, back into verse 6. Uh, Paul's just told us that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we say, okay, Paul, thank you. Uh, can you explain that a little more for us? What, how has this all happened? Well, he goes further in, in verse 6, when he says, for uh, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And two of the descriptors of the beneficiaries of God's love are in this verse, the weak and the ungodly. Uh, the word weak here, it's uh, also translated in other versions as without strength or helpless. And helpless is really the, a really great translation of the Greek word, and it comes across in those words from the song. You looked upon my helpless state. The Greek word is pronounced astenes, uh, and it also carries the idea of being sick or being impotent. 
in the New Testament is used several places, uh, but most significantly nine times in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, verses like 1 Corinthians 1.27 have a similar idea. You know verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's the same word, that word weak. Paul is contrasting two different types of wisdom, the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. And he's saying, no, God is not choosing those who are wise in the world's eyes. No, God is choosing those who, according to the world, they have nothing to offer. And that's all of us. We have nothing to offer the Lord at all. And yet he chooses us, those who are weak and helpless for his glory. Before Christ, we were unregenerate sinners. We were spiritually dead. We were incapable of doing anything to help ourselves. That's the definition of being weak without strength and helpless. But then we have these words, but God, but God at the right time, at his appointed time, he sent his son to die for the ungodly. At his appointed time. And there's another verse as well that speaks to the sovereignty of God's timing. It's Galatians 4, 4 and 5. We sometimes quote this at Christmas time. Uh, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that phrase there, the fullness of time, that has the same idea as in our passage today. It's God's perfect plan and his perfect timing. As we look at the world, what was the world like when Jesus came? All spheres of life, political, cultural, religious, they were all lined up perfectly, you could say, ready for the Messiah to come at that moment and that time. That is showing God's perfect timing. And Jesus himself referred to this a couple times as well. If you were with us a couple years ago when we were still meeting at the YMCA, we, we spent over a year studying the book of John. And in the book of John, we see Jesus saying things like, my time is not yet come, or my hour is not yet come. That has that same idea. God in his perfect plan, Jesus was waiting for that moment to set in the events in motion to go to the cross. But we think about our own lives. We often pray for God's perfect timing in our lives, don't we? Or we should be at least because we know that we are not in control. And although we would like to go to this city or we would like to go to this thing or we would like to see something happen, we recognize that it's God who is in control of everything. And so we have to submit uh, under his perfect timing. Even as Isaac and Kayla were here last week, and if it was up to them, they would be in Asia right now. But of course, we know at the events of the world, the doors have been closed. But yet they are, even as the months drag on, it gets harder, but they are desiring to be patient, desiring to trust in God's perfect timing to go overseas. Often, though, we become impatient, and we are the impatient ones, and we often buy into the lies that the world tells us, don't we, that you can have it now, right? And you can have it all, and not only that, but you deserve it. You deserve to have it now in the way you want it. You are in control. But that's not true. And just as God is perfect in his timing for his redemptive plan, it, he is also perfect in his timing for every situation and every season in our lives. So may we trust him in this area. But now we see the second beneficiary of God's love, and that's the ungodly. 
God's love for those he has called is clearly shown here because it's not based on our, our character or our merit at all. We are the ungodly. It is based on God's character, his goodness, and his mercy. He does not love us because we love him. No, it's the exact opposite. You know 1 John 4.19, we love him because he what? Right. Right, it's the exact opposite. But as we look at our, our, the human love that we display, our natural human love is different. It's usually based on how much we like the person, right? Or we gravitate towards people who like us, who love us. And when we do that, sometimes we can tend to apply that same kind of love onto God. And we think that his love is dependent on how good we are or how much we love him. But Jesus points out in Matthew that even the sinful, traitorous tax collectors would love those who love them. Look at these verses, or just listen to a couple of these, and one will be on the screen. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then here's this verse. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Thank the Lord that it is not based on us. Charles Hodge, uh, he was a great Bible commentator. In his commentary on Romans, he says this, If God loved us because we loved him, he would love us only so long as we love him. And that's the condition, on that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But as God loved us as sinners, as Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends, as the apostle argues, not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God on his love. It's all about what he has done. But then we come to this interesting phrase in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Paul says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So this is an interesting phrase. Uh, and we've all heard stories of those who have been rescued from death, saved by another. Maybe it was an EMT, maybe it was a fireman or policeman, or maybe it was just a, a, a bystander uh, who rushed to pull someone out of a burning car wreck. But I guarantee you, in those moments, the thought, well, I wonder if this person is worthy to be saved. Or, man, I wonder if this person is nice or if he's a jerk. I guarantee you that doesn't come into play at all. And why doesn't it? Because we are all image bearers of God. And thus we've been created to protect life because it is precious. And although we live in a society right now that is championing death as hard as they can, from in the womb even to the end of life, when we will euthanize the elderly because they're just a drain on society, most of us, if we see someone in a life-threatening situation, we are going to rush to try and help. And we're not going to ask the person, well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of helping you right now, but can you just tell me a little bit more? Are you a good person? We're not going to ask that question. It would, be, it would be ridiculous. And that's part of Paul's point here. Because he's not contrasting two kinds of people, the righteous and the good. He's actually saying that we are neither 
We are neither of these persons, and yet Christ doesn't ask us, does he? Christ sacrificed himself for us. And there's another point here as well, because the situation I described above is very rare, unless you serve in one of these lines of work. For most of us in everyday life, we're not going to be running into situations we're going to have to pull people from burning car wrecks. Uh, And then if we think, you know, very few of us would stand in line to sacrifice our life for somebody who is good in the world's eyes. And there wouldn't even be a line at all if the person in that line is a mass murderer. Nobody's going to line up for that. But God, in the person of Jesus Christ, willingly offered his life for us, the weak, the ungodly, the sinner, the mass murderers, you could say, for us. And then speaking of sinners, that brings us to the third description, and that comes in verse 8. This amazing verse. But God shows his love for you, for me, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is a key verse in this section. And it's a verse that probably many of us have memorized because of its glorious truth. And I don't think, though, it's a truth that we graduate from. Uh, Because the older we get, the more, Lord willingly, the more sanctified we become. And our sin becomes more apparent to us. And we hate our sin more and more. And yet we love the Lord more and more for extending his grace to us, even though we are still sinners. And of course, we know this is a selfless love. It's a love that we do not deserve. And we just saw that people won't even die for another good person, let alone give up their life for the wicked ones. But who would do that? Who would do that? Only a holy God. Only a holy God. Friends, when we were undesirable and worthless and helpless and impotent, and enemies, and hostile, and haters of God, and haters of Christ, and rejecters of truth, and proud, and self-willed, and the best, the very best that could be said of us was that our righteousness is this filthy rags, and our heart is desperately wicked. That's the best that could be said of us. But look at this, and this is what we're getting to. If God loves us enough to save us when we are the ungodly, when we are the wicked sinners, will he not love us enough to bring us to glory now that we are his children? He will. And this is coming in verses 9 and 10. So that, with that, we answer the first question. Who are the beneficiaries of this love? It's us, the weak, the ungodly, the sinner. But then we need to answer the second question. What are we saved from? What do we say from? And here we're going to see just a great portion on our eternal security as well. So verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And of course, if you've been with us so far in Romans, in the last couple of chapters, we've spent a lot of time diving into this great truth of justification by faith alone. We've looked at Abraham as our example in that. We've looked at the propitiating work accomplished on Calvary. But for our study today, I want to focus on more of the second half of this verse, where it says, much more, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And this phrase, much more, is very important because it's telling us that what is about to come is even more important. It's even more wonderful and amazing than what was previously said. The first half of verse 9 is kind of like uh, step one of our salvation, is what was accomplished in the past. We were justified. But the second half of the verse tells us what is going to be, what was accomplished, what are we saved from in the future, in the future. 
We are saved from the wrath of God. Uh, Romans chapter 1 tells us that the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Romans 2 told us that we were storing up wrath, waiting for the day of judgment. Ephesians 2 tells us that before God intervened, we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. John 3.36 tells us that the wrath of God remains on those who do not believe. They will not see eternal life. The part of the work that Jesus accomplished was to deliver us from the wrath to come. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.10. It says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And let's be reminded, friends, as we think and, disc- and look at this idea of wrath. We've talked about it before, but remember, the wrath of God is not anything like the anger that we feel in our hearts. Most of the time, the anger that we feel towards other people and other situations is a sinful anger. Very rarely, sometimes we do have a righteous anger that's described in scripture, but a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's a sinful anger. When we're talking about the wrath of God, you have to remove any type, uh, do not bring God down to our level and think, well, this, he's just an angry guy. It's not true at all. His wrath is holy. It's perfect. It's against sin. There's no sin in him at all. But the glorious truth is, friends, that we are immune from eternal wrath because we've been justified. And this means that God doesn't have any basis to condemn us. And why? Because our sins have been paid for in full. We know Romans 8, we'll get there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't have any basis to condemn us because our sins are paid for. And also, he doesn't have any basis to condemn us because we're covered by the righteousness of Christ. And listen to this. Consider this. For God to condemn us would mean he would have to condemn Christ. And of course, Christ is not condemned at all. Jesus is is beyond condemnation because he's holy, he's blameless, he's undefiled, he's separate from sinners. And so God sees us through the work of Christ. There's no basis at all to condemn us. You were made, if you've trusted in Christ, repented of your sin, you were made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're saved from God's wrath, but you could also say in a a sense that we are saved from God himself because God himself is the one that will be doling out judgment in the future. Jesus will be involved in that as well. As he comes a second time, As a judge, we're saved from God himself. But all of this is building. It's building and building to verse 10. Look at verse 10. It speaks to our eternal security. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so the idea is here, friends, that if God has the power and the will to redeem us in the first place, how much more does he have the power and the will to keep us redeemed? You could say it this way. If we now have peace with God, because God brought us to himself, he reconciled uh, us to himself when we were his enemies, how much more now that we are his reconciled children, will he keep us saved by the life of his son? And to put it one more way, if the dying Savior reconciled us to God, surely the living Savior can and will keep us reconciled. And this is important, friends, because it delivers us from uncertainty and doubt. 
in our lives. I'm sure many of you have struggled with the assurance of your salvation. I know in the past that I have as well. Why do we do that? Because we take the focus off God and we put it on ourselves. We say, Lord, I've been struggling with this sin. I can't seem to overcome it. Sometimes, Lord, I'll be honest with you, I don't even have the desire to read your word. I feel like giving up. I feel like just what hope is there? We, I know we struggle with those thoughts and feelings. But we, there's a problem when we look at our own feelings and we forget what God has said. We'll talk about it in a little bit, but that struggle that we have, that we know that we need the Lord's help, even when we are feeling, that is a part of an assurance of your salvation. If you were not saved, you would have no desire for that. If God has already rescued us from sin, death, and future wrath, how could our current spiritual life possibly be in jeopardy? If sin wasn't a barrier for us to come to God and be reconciled, how can it be a barrier to its completion? It can't. Uh, John Trapp, he was an Anglican Bible commentator in the 1600s, and he said this. Other pastors have quoted this as well. He said, It is a greater work of God to bring sinners to grace than to bring saints to glory, because sin is far more distant from grace than grace is from glory. You might have to work that in your head a couple times. But the idea is if, if God's grace is great enough to cover the sins of his enemies, how much more does it cover the sins of his children? And Paul's going from the lesser, as you can see, he's going from the lesser to the greater in this passage because of these much more statements. We've been justified, but much more than that, we are saved from the wrath to come. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, but much more than that, our salvation is secure in the work of Christ. Do you see it? Do you see it this morning? If God could save us, it's in a sense a greater and harder thing for him to do to save a sinner who's totally separate from him. It's much easier now to take that reconciled person and bring him to glory. It's much easier. Because God never found anything in us that was good, did he? He's never found anything in us that was worthy, never found anything in us that was deserving of salvation. He never loved us because of anything in us. He didn't love us because we were lovable or because we were valuable. But we hear this all the time, don't we? We have a world all around us that tells us that you are valuable. You need nothing else. In fact, you're better than most. And sometimes this infiltrates into the church as well that and God's just begging with a relationship with us. and If he can't have it, he's just going to be beside himself. But that's not true. Uh, there's a popular musical, and I hesitate to quote it because I know you're going to be singing it in your heads, but there's a, there's a popular musical, and part of the song goes like this. For we are glorious. When the sharpest words want to cut me down, I'm going to send a flood. I'm going to drown them out. I am brave. I am bruised. I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. Look out, because here I come, and I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. That's a catchy song that we all know. But when the first time I heard it, it really bothered me, because they've taken this word glorious, a word that describes God, and they've applied it to themselves. How horrible is that? It's so self-focused. 
I'm going to be who I am. Nobody can say anything about it. doesn't matter. It's all about me. I am glorious just because of who I am. But that's not true. You are not so glorious. You're not glorious at all. Neither am I. Neither are any of us. The only value we have is to put God's grace on display. We have no intrinsic value. Sin has totally corrupted us. And he didn't save us for our value. He saved us for his glory. That's the reason why he did it. We're thankful, though, that our God is such a faithful God because if it depended, if our salvation depended on us for just one split second of our personal righteousness, we would be lost. And John MacArthur has often said and that if I could lose my salvation, I definitely would. I definitely would. We all would if it was anchored in us. But it's not anchored in us. It's anchored in us in Christ and the permanent relation of peace, grace, and hope that we have. We sing here, Christ the sure and steady anchor. He surely is. So if God loved us enough to save us when we are his enemies, he surely loves us enough to keep us now that we are his friends. And you know what? He's proven it too. He's proven it to us by sending the Holy Spirit to live in us. Paul says in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is the down payment and the guarantee of our eternal glory. We have eternal salvation, amen? And by grace and grace alone. So first we answered the question, who are the beneficiaries? Next we answered, what are we saved from and the security that we have in that? And so finally, our third question, what does this love produce in us? And that's in verse 11. Look at verse 11. More than that, again, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what does this love produce? It produces joy. It produces joy. In other translations, uh, use the word exult, not exalt, exult, E-X-U-L-T. Uh, I think it's the NASB. It says we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and the word there in Greek is pronounced kahalmai, and it's used many times in the New Testament, but it also means to glory in, to boast in, as well as rejoice. And it's the love of God that produces this joy in us. But why? Well, the rest of the verse tells us because we have received reconciliation through the work of Christ. Christ atoned for our sins. He's brought us back into a right relationship with God because of the work on the cross. And it's this fact that gives us a joy that the world can't even come close to, can't touch it. We sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, it's Jesus who commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand until he returns or calls me home. Here in the power, in the love of Christ, we stand. The world's hymn writers can't write anything like that. They can't come close. They have no hope. They have no joy that comes through those type of words, what we see here. Not only that, but this message of reconciliation has been entrusted to us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. All this is from God, amen, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is why we desire to see Bibles translated. This is why we send and support missionaries. 
We have been given this truth and we were required to be good stewards of it. Of all the books and people in the Bible, David uh, and the other psalmists are probably the best examples uh, of finding joy in the Lord. Look at these three examples, different ways that joy is expressed. Psalm 33.1, we're told to shout for joy in the Lord. O you righteous, praise befits the upright. Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And then Psalm 92, 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. And so we have three different ways. We have a general shout of joy because what the Lord has done. Then we see the psalmist being excited about finding his joy in who God is, God himself. And then the third way we see joy is what God has done at the works of his hands. And so that's why here at church, we sing songs that communicate objective truths about who God is and what he has done. Uh, We need to be careful about subjective songs that are filled with um, very personal uh, devotion, poetic language that can be taken different ways, that can be interpreted different ways. God has been clear on how we are to worship him, and he's given us the language. He's given us the language of who he is, his attributes, and then what he's done. But most of all, the gospel. We sing about the gospel as well. I was very clear in that way. We see this in the Psalms, how joy is expressed. But outside of God's word, uh, one of the most beautiful hymns that expresses Christian joy is a hymn called, O oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. Now, we don't sing it here at Shoreline. We should be, and we probably will in the future. But it was written by Charles Wesley, uh, such a great hymn writer. And these are two of the verses that he wrote. O oh, four thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. Amen. Well, this morning, friends, we've hopefully put God's love on display. I hope this has been encouraging for you. Uh, Through these three questions that we've looked at, that God's love has been displayed for us all to see. But as we think of our application Our application is pretty straightforward. It's here in verse 11. We rejoice in God. If you are a true believer here this morning, you are called to rejoice. Rejoice in what Christ has done. And we accomplish this every Sunday as we gather as the saints and we rejoice together. But it's also done on a very personal level as well, on a daily basis, as you consider how the gospel is impacting your life. There's a reason why in our member interviews that we not only ask, okay, how would you describe the gospel? But we also ask, how have you seen the gospel impact your life? What has the Lord done through the years that he's given you? How has he molded you? How has he brought situations into your life? How are the implications of the gospel worked out in your marriages, in your parenting, in your job, in your finances, in every aspect of daily life? If Christ is the center The fruit of the Spirit will be displayed. Joy will be produced. We will see these different realms of life being looked at from a different perspective. We don't find joy by listening to a radio station, but by presenting our life as a living sacrifice and walking daily in the Spirit. But for those of you this morning who are not truly saved, 
And I say not truly saved because you've trusted maybe in an altar call, you've trusted in a prayer, you've trusted in good works, you've trusted in baptism or communion or just attending church instead of repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone. To repent of sin means to hate and forsake our sin. Forsake it because it is displeasing to God to turn from sin and turn to Christ. Trust him alone like we trust a parachute if we were to jump out of a plane to save us. If that is you this morning, you have not truly repented of your sin, Charles Spurgeon has some words for you. He says, what? Says one. No good works. Good works will come afterwards, but they do not go with it. You must come to Christ, not with your good works, but with your sins. And coming with your sins, he will take them away and give you good works afterwards. After you believe, there will be good works as the effect of your faith. But if you think faith will be the effect of good works, you are mistaken. It is believe and live. Come with your sins. Believe and live. That's our desire for you this morning. Don't believe the lies from the world and maybe from other well-known speakers and pastors that would tell you that you're actually pretty much all right and that you're doing a pretty good job and that you just need to appropriate Christ. You need to tack Jesus on for fulfillment. But you're not all right. That's the truth. The truth is you're not all right. You stand condemned before a holy God. Repent and believe the gospel this morning. And then how do you know? And maybe for the rest of us this morning, how do you know that you are truly saved? Well, the Bible tells us that the Lord gives us a new heart. And with a new heart comes new desires, a new focus, a different life. It's an outward change. We see that, but it's not produced in us. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. And we'll see the full fruit of the Spirit displayed in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are these things true of you this morning? Of course, we know that we are not perfect in these things. We sin. We struggle with sin. But there is a distinct change. There is a new direction in your life. We no longer live for our own selfish desires. We live for the Lord. We live for his church. We live to serve the church. And we proclaim the gospel to those who have not yet believed, near and far. Well, we'd love to talk more with you about that. Please come talk to me. Come talk to Michelle. Come talk to Peggy. Come talk to any of the imperados. Come talk to us. Come, come talk to Derek in the back. We would love to share more with you. Well, next week, Lord willing, we will continue in Romans and we're going to see how sin and death actually entered the world through Adam. But then we'll see how Christ is referred to often as the second Adam. We even sing it as well in our song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. We sing, see the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. We'll see that Christ, although Adam brought death and sin, Christ brings justification in life. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, what a privilege it is to, to consider your love for us just a moment this morning. These great truths that even while we were your enemies, even while we were still sinners, that you would choose us, Lord, to die for us, to reconcile us. And not just to reconcile us, but to keep us in your love, Lord, to keep us until the end, that we will be saved from the wrath that you have for those who do not believe, for Satan and his angels and others, Lord. 
We thank you that we will not have to experience that because of the work of your son. Jesus, we worship you this morning. We praise your name alone. We thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit to live in our lives and to continually turn our hearts, which are so often prone to wander. Lord, we thank you that the Holy Spirit is there to convict us, to point us to truth, and to be our guarantee, our down payment of our future eternal inheritance. Lord, may we desire to serve you and to serve this church. May the fruits of the Spirit be displayed in our lives in such a way that the outside world would want to know what is going on with these people. Lord, give us opportunities to share that love, to share how we can be forgiven with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.